I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, an interview with environmentalist, tugboat captain, and YouTuber, Tim Bomer from Tim B at Sea. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Yay! Thank you, Todd. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well today, thank you, and I hope you're doing well. Uh, we're still recording in remote uh, locations. Uh, normally, we go to the studio together, uh, but because of the COVID, we're doing it separately. And um, so, yeah, that's it. That's what we're doing. I'm ready to go. Yeah, and it seems like last week's episode, uh, Mutiny, did very well. People seem to really like that story. Yeah, that was. It's been fantastic the way people have uh, received it. Um, I'm very excited about it, and uh, I just keep. I just got to keep churning out some great stories, and and there are plenty of stories out there. I can tell you that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, what do we have planned for this week's episode? Well, this week um, I interviewed uh, Captain Tim. Uh, he is a tugboat captain in New York Harbor. Uh, he is an environmentalist, um, and he is a really interesting guy. He's actually a YouTube sensation um, at Tim B at C. And he has a lot of really great things to say, and uh, it's it was a it was a good 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 um, conversation, and 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 another part of the conversation is is very early in my marine career, I drove tugboats uh, in uh, New York Harbor, and um, you know it was a it was a great job. It's a very demanding job. It's a highly skilled job. And um, Tim brings a lot of um, thought and uh, wisdom to to the uh, to to the whole situation, and and I think that if you're a recreational boater, um, this is a guy you wanna you wanna listen to because you know there's a lot of times when you're out sailing in your boat and or or motoring or whatever, and you look up and you see this you know, 100-foot tug with a 300-foot barge coming at you. There's a little bit of trepidation, and you get a little bit nervous. And I think after you listen to what Tim has to say, um, you're going to feel a lot better on how to handle that situation. Great. Well, take it away, Scott. This, You know what? If I have to learn one more app, <laughs> Dude, I, I've been pulling my hair out all morning on different different apps and fighting with this, uh, trying to get my merch store up. I guess I uh, put a, a storefront up, and it was uh, linked to the wrong email address, and so uh, it would never come over to to YouTube. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough okay. of that. Enough of that. Well, that's interesting, anyway, to say the least. So there was a couple of questions. First of all, I want to do is to have you essentially introduce yourself because um, my audience, which is, I think, a little different than your audience, um, two audiences which really should know each other. Uh, uh, and um, most of my audience is, is uh, sailors. Um, I have a, We talk a lot about, I do a lot of pieces on, on art. The whole idea of Offshore Explorer is to see the world through the mariner's point of view. So when I come into a country, which I, we have a whole, we, I've been to a lot of countries, but when I come into a country, I always, you know, look at the place like, let me, let me rephrase this. So when you're on the boat, right, and you've been on the boat for a while, like you have just been on the boat for a while, when you get off the boat and get on land and start, 
it's like everything's fresh. Absolutely. There's a different perspective. It's, it's that perspective that this show is about. Oh, that's cool. I, I, I get, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. It's very, it's, it, it's just a physical thing. Cause you know, the boat changes the way your body is it, you know, it's, there's no past. There's only the present and maybe the waypoint and that's <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not a problem. I want to thank you for being here. And if you would be so kind as to say hello to my audience. All right. Well, thank you very much. And hello, my name is captain Tim Burmer. Um, I've been, uh, in the commercial maritime field for about 20 years now. I incidentally, for some of you sailing people that are on the East Coast, you might know where I originally grew up. I grew up on an island 16 miles off the coast of Maine called Monhegan Island. And it's a, <laughs> a small little teeny island out in the middle of nowhere and sees a lot of uh, cruising traffic that comes through because it's hard to get to. But anyway, for the last 20 years, I've been a uh, uh, commercial mariner running a tugboat Um Right now, contracts change, but right right now, um, we predominantly do what we call bunker work in New York Harbor. But um, with a company with the different contracts and whatever comes up, I used to be on an Avgas run that would take us from the border of Mexico all the way up to Maine. And another one that uh, another company I worked for, I was running fly ash from Baltimore all the way to San Juan. So we get around and. Uh, the reason why I wanted to reach out to all you people today was that uh, I, I too have a media platform, but it's on YouTube, and uh, I have a YouTube channel called Tim B at C. And so some people see it, it's spelled out with the AT, not the at sign. So, so yeah. some people call it Tim Batsy. <laughs> yeah, but, that's what I first thought. When I first read of this, I said, well, wait a minute. Is this Tim Batsy? Is this, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, so, it's, so, so I developed this channel a while ago and the channel has gone off into a different, uh, a, a different direction than I originally had thought. And that was just, as I think those of us that aren't savvy as far as the media goes, have these different ideas and as we start to learn we grow within the we we realize what works and what doesn't work and i had originally set my channel up to do a little bit of uh stuff with alternative energy and stuff with uh the maritime field and stuff with uh travel well the only thing that really took off with the audience was the maritime stuff so that's where we're really focused on and what my what, what i'm really trying to do right now is to build uh, a community of people that are of different walks or I shouldn't say walks of life, but different people that, that utilize the same uh, medium, which would be the ocean or the, or the waterways. Um, it's, it's been a, uh, it, it seems very normal or I shouldn't say normal, but accepted that there is this battle between the recreational boaters and commercial uh, guys, well, there's also the battle which I have never understood between sail and power. Yes, yes. Well, well, I have some thoughts. It's funny. I've been wanting to do a video on that, but <laughs> but but to well, continue on what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a community where at first when this channel first started taking off, it took off with a lot of the people that I work with in New York, um, a lot of the tugboat uh, message boards promoted right. one of my videos and it really mm -hmm. kind of took off. So I really thought this was a way that I could uh, communicate with uh, fellow merchant mariners of uh, all walks of life. And then the, the recreational people got in and I really saw an opportunity that this would be a, a, a good opportunity for all of us to come together to use the ocean where it's not my ocean and it's not your ocean, it's all of ours. And we can, if, um, I, I think where our battle lines are really drawn between the two groups really starts with miscommunication. Um, I don't know what this sailboat is doing, or I don't know if this powerboat guy, what he's thinking. I don't know his level of education. And when I say education, I'm talking about a maritime education, obviously. But I, I, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know if he sees me or if, or if they see or if I see them. And so communication is a big thing that I try to push. And I think that with our channel, where every week, we, you know, every Tuesday, I try to upload a new video. And um, 
Sometimes I, I do a little bit more, but usually it's every Tuesday. And we talk about different things. Uh, you know, maybe I'll show a different route that we do, and I'll talk about a little bit of history of where we go, whether it be up the East River, or going through the Cape Cod Canal or the C&D Canal. There's other ones I do on seamanship and navigation that sort of thing. But anyway, um, I was all happy that you reached out to me, Scott. Thank you so much for that. Because uh, You're welcome. The, there is something that I want your audience to know, and that's that sure. they should they should not be afraid of the commercial people. Now, granted, there are some gruff guys, and the notion that we're all sleep-deprived zombies um, – None of us get the sleep that we want, but that's that. That doesn't mean that we're sleep deprived. We're, we're we're by law we can only work twelve hours a day. There are some gruff people, but there are a lot of us in my side of the field that we're drawn to the water not for a paycheck, but but for the same reason you guys are drawn to the water. We're, there, there's an inner calling within us, and. We just happen to be making a living where you might be having to spend your living. That's exactly right. And so a, a lot of times, you know, like a lot of people on my channel will comment and they'll say stuff like, uh, hey, I really wanted to call the boat, the tugboat and ask them, am I going to be a problem or not? But I was afraid to. Like, you know, the, there may be some gruff guys out there, but there's some gruff sailboat guys, too. So. Just pick up the radio and try it. One of my uh, one of one of one of the videos I did was about using Channel Thirteen, but that's a that's a whole other thing about how you can communicate with uh, commercial traffic locally and that sort of thing. But that's but that's to, to try to talk about myself. That's really what I'm trying to do with my channel is to try to bring the recreational world in with the the commercial world and blend the two together where we can all have a common community together and make the place more fun when it's more fun for you it's going to be more fun for me too um I, you know uh, one of the things i tell people is even if you're awake and even if you see me by having a communication between you and me just that we know that we're both looking at each other my stress level goes way down and i'm sure yours does too so that's kind of the where i'm going with my channel that's yeah, that's that. That's I mean, for me, it's I started out originally. I mean, I had a my grandfather built and bought me a little small Hirschhoff design 21 foot sloop, mm -hmm. and I used to sail that around Cape May in um, um, in uh, uh, out in Cape May, Egg Harbor, all the rest of that. I used to come out. Um, through the Townsend Inlet, which yeah. I had to demast the boat to get underneath <laughs> the bridge, then put it back in. And I literally sailed up to Bar Harbor, Maine wow. in this little 20 foot when I was uh, I was 16. And um, why I would do that uh, when you're 16, it was because of a girl. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had that I had that going. And, and at that point, I was also racing International 14s, which the whole racing boat racing class world is a different animal than say the cruiser world. Sure. And it's a, it just as, just as the commercial world is a different world from, uh, the big mega yacht world. Sure. I mean, we're still driving big shit basically, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. and, and the, the principles of driving it are pretty much the same. Um, but I was fortunate enough to get a job as an engine wiper, which we had talked about, uh, <laughs> Uh, before, which is if you get your Z card, they'll always say wiper on right. the card. And everybody, the young guys will all look at that and they have, they think windshield wiper. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> but it, uh, the, the wiper is a traditional, uh, that was a traditional uh, merchant marine starting point, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. You would, uh, you would be down in a steam engine room and, and you would, uh, wipe the steam steam engine off for all the moisture that it created. <laughs> then go dry the towels and do this and do that. And that's what it was really about. But I had the opportunity to work in the Great Lakes on ore boats, uh, which are a completely different animal. And um, a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of um, good times were had. Uh, the lakes are a completely different animal to sail and drive in than the ocean. They could be perfectly flat one day and and 10 minutes later it's the squall will kick up you know giant waves now i've always wondered do they really call the big lake chikumi 
<laughs> Those Gordon Lightfoot fans out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Good, good musical reference on that one. So, well, I think we're showing our age. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, Tim, tell me just how did you? I know it'd be interested for people, interesting for people to know um, how you got started. I mean, that's kind of how I got started in the business as a young person. Sure. Uh, sure. How did you well, get? I- it's kind of it's it's an odd way. <laughs> I don't Always know if there's a standard route, but mine's an odd one. Like I say, I grew up on this island off the coast of Maine, and um, it's basically a fishing community. And so um, it's so small that there was a one-room schoolhouse from kindergarten through eighth grade. Then after that, you'd have to go away to a prep school. Mm. And uh, then so during on my vacations and during the summer and that sort of stuff, I would come back and fish with the with the guys there. And uh, my father wasn't a fisherman; he was just a carpenter. And uh, so I had I, I I've been a, you know the water was something that was had been instilled in me for quite a while, and uh, I ended up going to the the University of Maine in Orono as for a, I was a comp sci major, and that was the back in the days where we were programming mm-hmm. CPM right. and assembler and Fortran and COBOL and all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah. Any, I made a any, Santa Claus with that stuff, you know, the printout <laughs> sheet, yes. Santa Claus. <laughs> well, well, um, I ended up. My brother had moved to to Rhode Island um, because he was he was commercial fishing, and Rhode Island back in the eighties was Point Judith was where you where everyone was doing the big fishing, you know, yeah. as far as money and and catch back then. So I, uh, my brother and I have always been very close, and so I I moved down to see. Uh, my brother, and I don't know what your what your fan base is like, but a joke that I always say that always seems to be fun for the guys, but girls don't think it's as funny as I say. I moved out of Maine and I moved to Rhode Island so I could date women that weighed less than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably inappropriate today, but, but the point is taken. <laughs> well, I, I apologize. <laughs> at, at, at any rate... Um, so, so I fell in love with Rhode Island, and I was fishing in Rhode Island in the 80s. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just Rhode Island, but many fishing ports around the world, when the ports become very profitable and very big, a lot of money comes in fish and fishermen or sailors for that matter, but especially fishermen have been known to get spend their money in less than ideal ways. Um, so it's, so a, it's a tradition. It, it, it is. And and Point, Point Judith, among other places like New Bedford and stuff like that, there were hard places back in the 80s because a lot of money came in and a lot of people did a lot of things that they probably wish they didn't do. And right. uh, th- those sorts of things happen. So at, at one point, I was... Uh, I was fishing uh, on a boat that was going off uh, in George's Bank. And uh, I remember I... I wasn't really fitting in with the crew. There were they had a very they there was two guys that owned the boat and they were both co-captaining the boat and there was five of us on the boat and uh they were both young and uh they both seemed to take issue with that I had gone to college. And uh so that that was an issue and then when people started I just there were a lot of drugs going on and uh right. I I I saw the whole the maritime industry for me, for my vision in that time of my life, meant commercial fishing, and I thought I saw it as a place where, um, when nothing else in your life worked, that's what you ended up doing. So I was very eager to get out. I got out, and oddly enough, I, at what we say now in in my line of business is I got a job on the beach. That doesn't mean that we're on the beach. It just yeah. means I got out to sea. So I, oddly enough. For years, I, I worked selling auto parts and then computers that sold auto parts for <laughs> various companies. But the whole time, there was something missing in what I did. And uh, I, I didn't realize at the time that it was the call of the sea that was within me. Um, there's something that is, I'm sure, familiar to a lot of your uh, listeners, is that when I, my my wife and I had bought a a pleasure boat, a power boat, a sea ray. 
And we were spending a lot of money both on the mortgage of the boat and on dockage and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, I found out that if I had taken the sea time that I had and sat for a captain's license, I could charter the vessel with quotation marks around there right. mm-hmm. and offset some of the costs of the uh, of boat ownership, whether it be by claiming a loss at the end of the year or by taking in some extra revenue. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to uh, I went to a really basic sea school, one of those every Tuesday night more of things and uh, mm-hmm. sat through and um, I had the tonnage to get the uh, just a hundred ton license. And uh, um, I, like I say, I, it wasn't any. It wasn't a really big deal for me. It was only trying to justify the money I was spending on right. uh, recreationally. Well, as that went on, my life went on. We, you know, I, I said we we got married, we bought a house, we started to have children, we bought other boats. Um, I started liking my job less and less and less, and this was where, <laughs> where I was selling auto parts. And uh, one day I. St- or what wasn't that? I should back up and tell you that on the island that I grew up with, I grew my best friend out there, where means the other person on the island because yeah. there's so few people. <laughs> um, he actually went to Maine Maritime. Maine Maritime had a nuclear yes. program, and he became right. a nuclear engineer. Well, he ended up marrying a, a woman that had a twin sister, and he married her, and the twin sister married another guy that that was also in the deck. He didn't go in the engineering route at uh, Maine Maritime. He was in the deck, uh, so he came out as a third mate unlimited. Anyway, the two of them, because they were now brother-in-laws, were very friend, good friends. And um, he built some. My friend built submarines and then aircraft carriers down in Newport News for longer than he ever wanted. His brother-in-law was offshore working for uh, MSC, Military Sealift Command. Mm-hmm. So then missing the holidays and they had had children and that sort of stuff. And so at one day they hated their jobs and they both quit their jobs and pooled their money and bought an old boat that the Maine Maritime had called the Argo Maine, the research vessel Argo Maine. And they started doing what they called uh, uh, scientific charters. And this is mm-hmm. where... Yeah, and this is you know where um, you know we think of like uh, a lot of stuff in our military, like the Navy might have a supersonar. Um, what the Navy will do is they will contract with independent contractors to to exactly. develop different things, and so they need boats that do this that aren't really naval personnel. So they were doing this, and my my buddy, uh, the, the, they had a, a contract with. Uh, a company called Newark, the Naval Underwater Warfare College in 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 uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and they were gonna, they were going to tow this great big thing called a multi-element digital phased array. It's a big antenna for a submarine, and they were all set. But th- this thing would float on the surface of the water column, and the, it was like a half a mile long. So they needed right. they need they needed chase boats from the Coast Guard to protect this. Right about the same time. Planes were flying into the World Trade Center in oh, New York. Oh, right. And so when when they went to utilize the Coast Guard assets to protect this thing that they were towing, the Coast Guard said, hey, we, we had our hands full. We can't do it. So they called me. They said, hey, Tim, how's your boat running? I said, oh, it's running good. They said, you got a license, right? I said, yeah. I said, do you have commercial insurance? I said, no. I said, but I can probably get some. So they said, well, how much vacation time do you have? I said, oh, I got a bunch saved up. So I ended up spending one summer doing day charters, running my boat, protecting their array. Now, the reason <laughs> the reason why I'm telling you all this was it was one of those moments where, you, you know, you, you, you know, your mother told you that all things work together for good. It was an amazing time because I was surrounded by these brilliant minds of people, these scientists that were from all different walks. They right. worked together all around the world. They've done this sort of stuff. And I saw a level of professionalism on the mariners that I'd never been exposed to before. I mean, right. I, I'd, I'd known other merchant mariners, but they were always on holiday and everything. They were, you know, right. just, just like fishermen at that point. Right. And, and, and I don't mean to speak poorly about fishermen. I'm just saying that that wasn't the career path that I wanted to take. So, so while I was doing that, I was saying one night, I remember I was thinking on the back of my boat, I was saying, 
I spend so much money every year to have a private boat to do what I'm doing right now, getting paid to. So this is how life is supposed to be. You should love your job. Right. So it was at that, at that point that I decided to quit everything. And I stayed on through the project and they went through a proof of concept and then an implementation test. And then I went to, and actually ran as mate on the Argo while they were replacing uh, uh, the the go moose buoys, the, the Gulf of Maine data acquisition buoys for the weather buoys. Right. Mm -hmm. And when that contract ended, I didn't have a job anymore. And I and I couldn't go back. I said that, you know, I'd drawn a line in the sand. I wasn't going to sell auto parts anymore. I was going to try to make a way of it as a, as a professional mariner. And so I looked all over and I couldn't get into tugboats because back then you really needed to know somebody. And I didn't know anybody in the tugboat field. Mm-hmm. So as things went by, one one thing led to another. I accepted a job running a crew boat down in the oil patch in in the um, in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was a I, 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 I'm going to interrupt you there for just a second because I think that the the, the epiphany that you had about yeah. hey this is where I'm going to go is is the same thing I've experienced and the same thing oh, that so a lot cool. of people have experienced. Because, you know, I, I was lucky enough to work in high school on an ore boat, okay? But yeah. it was kind of a blur, really. Yeah. I mean, I you sure. know, I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, you know, the captain took me under his, his wing and said, okay, we have to navigate by this. And, you know, we have Loren and this is really modern. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know, but here's how we actually navigate because we don't trust it. You know, right. we use we use lighthouses and then we we have this triangle <laughs> that you're going to have to learn how to use on a chart. And I'm like, oh, OK, OK. And, you know, I picked it up and I they helped me. They helped me get my my license. Oh, that's great. And 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 then, you know, I I I was drafted. Now, this is really giving. And wow. I, I I ended up spending two tours in Vietnam. Wow. I, I came back. And it was like, okay, I gotta go to I gotta go to college because I was actually going to college. Sure. And and then they drafted me you, because the bone spurs didn't hurt you? No, no, no. I you know, <laughs> I tried to buy some, but I, I didn't have enough money. And 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 everybody said to me, it says, Oh, Scott, you're drafted. Why go in the army? Why not, you know, you're a sailor, why not go into the Navy? Well, if you went in the Navy, that was four years. All right. Right. And the army was only at best 18 years. Long story. 18 I'll months. Skip 18 <laughs> months. Yeah. Well, it seems like that 18 mm -hmm. years. But um, I came back. I went, I decided to go to school. I went back to school, you know, got married, kid, blah, 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 blah. And then it came to the point where I was so utterly unhappy, right, with being on the land. And I, I, I didn't know what it was. I've always been a writer. So I've always had that. And I have, I have written a couple of fairly famous films um, that I have co-authored. I've worked with famous directors. And I've, I've done a number of films of my own that, that, that have become quite famous. And uh, then I was up actually in New York City because I, had been, I was living down in, in, in Princeton and I was in New York City, and I was watching the tugboats go back and forth, and I was having a play. I was working on getting a play in, in Manhattan, off, off, off Broadway. And it's like, that's my auto parts store, right? Yeah, right, and, right. And, but I love it. It's a different kind of passionate love. And I'm saying, you know what? I got the license to drive one of those puppies, and I bet I can drive one of those. The arrogance of youth, right? <laughs> right. So I went and applied and they gave me the job. Nice. And then from that point on, I knew it. Um, I knew that's what I was going to do. Um, years later, I had to, actually, I, I drove for McAllister for uh, two years while I worked in, in, I lived in Manhattan, worked in Manhattan, took the ferry to pick up the boat. Yeah, you know, sometimes the boat would come and pick me up at the UN building, which I saw in your, you know, there's a, there's a cruise boat that's there that's a charter boat. It's a big white thing. I forget the name of it um, that used to park right there next to the UN, right? Oh, is that right? Yeah, and, and I used to run that. I ran that oh, for, for a little while 
in New York and, you know, do the Statue of Liberty and sure, drive sure, around sure. and nice. all the rest and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So I got to know New York Harbor really, really well. Sure. And and I think that what I'm trying to get at is, is this all sort of hit me. And then sure. I, I was successful at writing some some movies and I had made some money and I said, you know what, I'm going to buy a boat and I'm going to go to the Caribbean. And I went to the Caribbean and I bought a boat. I bought a CT-54, oh, a Robert, wow. per- Robert Perry wow. design. And then for the next 18 years, I chartered in the Caribbean and in the Mediterranean, making 18 crossings, round wow. trip across the Atlantic wow. and the Med. And I guess, you know, this is a, that was a dream job. I was making money. You know, I was going to charter. Sure. Uh, it, it got to the point where the boat was uh, still in Bristol shape, but I couldn't get the price for it. And the insurance went up so high that the charter business itself sort of fell apart. Sure. Right. But I remember going to Puerto Rico, for example, and I took I sat for um, all my courses there because they keep when you I have an I had I don't anymore because I'm not doing the courses um, an unlimited tonnage license. Mm. And because I had the captain on the ore boats wrote me out for that. Right. Yeah. That's, a, that's an amazing story. And, uh-huh. and, and so the epiphany that you had about like, okay, you know what? This is not me. That's All right. <laughs> I'm getting on the water. I think a lot of my listeners and I'm sure your listeners are all pretty much the same way. They either haven't had that epiphany or they see it and they haven't just said, I'm going to go after it. That's the main it, thing. You know, Scott, it's, it's, it's almost a cliche, but if, if, if you can, f- you, you truly win the lottery when you find an occupation that you would do anyway. You know, uh, uh, I, I, I was just saying what, right, right before you and I started talking, one of my buddies came over to drop something off at the house and uh, he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't really know. I know what I know what to do on the boat, <laughs> and I'm yeah. home. And and, and uh, you know, if, if if you can surround yourself with good people and a job that you love going to, you've got it made. And uh, that was definitely the case for me when I, you know, um, one thing led to another, and I almost gave. I was start. I was telling you that I almost put, picked up this awful job in in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was like it was like like I think like like $118 a day and it was 21 days on and 14 off. And it's just like, right. Oh my God, this is terrible. And, uh, I called up one of my friends that I used to sell auto parts to that was a mechanic who had moved to Connecticut. And he, uh, I was like, yeah, it looks like I'm go- I won't be seeing you around for a while. I got to go work in the Gulf. He goes, Oh, why, why are you doing that? Why don't you go on tugboats? I said, well, I tried, but no one will, I, you know, I don't have any experience on tugboats and no one will take me. He goes, I oh, can come work for the company I work for, where he's he was a, a diesel mechanic. And I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, yeah, well, that's nice. You know, you know how your buddies always hook you yeah, up. Yeah, 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 sure. He told me to call this guy. I called this guy, and it was a very similar story to your guy. Said, uh, yeah, you got you got your Z card. I go, yep. Yeah. He goes, you know, there wasn't a Twit card or anything or an MMC back then. He goes, uh, can can you pass a drug test? I said, yeah. He goes. <laughs> Can you be here tomorrow? I said, yes, I can. <laughs> and that's where it but all started. It's so funny. It's so funny because, you know, can you pass a drug test? And this is like one of the most notorious, no, most notorious things. I actually got a job and I was in San Diego. I was running a sailboat, uh, a, a, a Southwester um, Hinkley 53. It was wow. a gorgeous boat. I, I actually have. You don't give uh, those away. <laughs> no, no, no. I worked for it. I worked for a guy who was the salt of the earth. It was. It's on one of my podcasts. Um, it's about my first captain's gig, and that was really my first charter captain's gig there. But in between working the boat, all the fisher fishermen that were out doing charters and stuff like that got busted by the coast guard, <laughs> right? So they they all had their licenses suspend it because they all failed drug tests and so what they did is they hired me to go out for 500 bucks right (laughs) and i had a zodiac dinghy and they would call me on the radio the coast guard's coming by my boat i'm here and i would race over to the boat and i would be (laughs) the captain on that boat when the coast guard and then like an hour later they see the same guy me (laughs) 
Oh wow! That, that's, yeah, that that's was amazing. That was a crazy story. That that lasted for like two weeks, and then the guys just said, "Oh, this is ridiculous. We're just we're just stop doing drugs, I guess." So, <laughs> <laughs> so, but let me ask you. Let me ask you this on your uh, channel. There's a couple of things that I really enjoy, and and one of the re- things that I think is really successful about your channel. And I want uh, my audience um, to to really pay attention. To, I mean, the fact that you were, first of all, uh, you're a charming and interesting and articulate guy and a really fine representative of of that side of the business in terms of, oh, of the merchant read stuff. Now, it's really important. I know exactly how hard, uh, and I don't think people realize this, you know, when you have a 300-foot barge and a hundred foot tug like going up um newton new, uh, newton new, newtown creek yeah. newtown creek um i just love that because i actually used to go in there oh. all the time An to awful place up, to <laughs> garbage scowls yeah right oh yeah that's what you were doing the garbage room for mccallison that's right exactly yeah they, they used so to do i that. used to go in there all the time and boy was i stupid <laughs> <laughs> Well, because I loved your explanation about how having two two screws and a rudder and how the wash really, really doesn't work correct. when you get in shallow water, you that's know, correct. and I think that's that's the kind of if you would explain a little bit of that dynamic, because a lot of my guys, they love to They pull out of the, the dock yeah. and they, they go sailing. Sure. It's all going forward. Um, they have very little, they don't learn how to maneuver a boat. For example, when I teach somebody, which I don't know how many people I've taught to do this, probably a hundred or so at least, but I'll take somebody in a power boat, for example, out to a buoy and I'll tell them, let's do the clock. (laughs) Put, put the nose of your boat on the buoy at 12 and then back it up and work your way all the way around you know, that way you get the wind, sure. you get you get the current, you get everything and sure. start to think in delay. In sure. other words, a- absolutely. When you do this and power this, there's going to be an effect somewhere along the line <laughs> that sure. you have to anticipate. But if you would well, explain that yeah, moving a- the parts, that would be really cool. Scott, you know, um, Oddly enough, I, I think that this is one of the things where sail, people familiar with sailboaters will probably get this more than powerboaters will. I and the reason, and, and the, the, the reason for that is that what we call, what's standard in, in most boats is what we call a right-hand wheel. Now, on my channel, because only 71% of my audience is from the U.S., there are people from all over the world, everyone wants to fight with me saying they're called props or propellers or whatever. Whatever. We are all talking about the same thing. In my world, we call them wheels. Right. Anyway, so for those of you that don't know, if you were had your boat out of water and you were looking at the looking at the back of your boat, if you had a right hand wheel, your wheel would turn clockwise as you're going ahead. It would turn counterclockwise going behind. So and and obviously you know the Scott, but this is what I'm just trying to explain my theory. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so there's a phenomenon called prop walk and this is where sailboaters will understand this most sailboaters i don't mean all of them but most sailboats will have a right hand wheel just like i explained most sailboaters even people with a full keel but especially if you have a thin keel will notice that when you back it always backs to port mm-hmm. it, or, or it favors the port side i should favors say favors the port side that right there is a perfect example of what prop walk is and it has to do with the water going when when you start to back up how it fetches up between the top of the uh, or the bottom of your boat and the bottom Mm -hmm. of the the water that effect happens more and more as the water gets shallow so things start getting really crazy when things start happening in shallow so in other words if I'm going ahead and I have two engines now on, on a twin screw boat, ideally you have two that are going in opposite ways so that they don't fight each other. And there's a whole 
different schools of thought of whether you have inboard turning wheels or outboard turning wheels. Some people like it this way. Some people like it that way. Personally, I'm of the inboard turning wheel ones because, because we can utilize the prop walk to help us what we call walk the boat. That means where we make the boat actually go sideways. And that, right. that that's another discussion. But anyway, so when you get into a place that has very shallow water, I try to, when I, when I have you know uh, people that are coming up, becoming mates, and I try to explain to them what's going on, I'd say, imagine when you were a kid or even whenever, if, you, if you're sitting in a bathtub and you start moving your hands, one, you know, your left hand forward and your right hand back, and you start getting the water swirling around you in the bathtub, at first you can really get a good purchase on the water. It really mm -hmm. bites in. You get, right. Once you get that water moving, you're almost slowing it down after that. It, it, right. You're having very little effect on that. Now, in the open ocean, that's not an issue because there's a lot of water. When you're in a very shoal place and there's not a lot of room between you and the um, b b b between the propeller and the bottom of whether it be the side of a channel or the the, right. the bottom bottom of the of the ocean or the channel that you're at. Well, most the, marinas are that way. Most marinas are you know 15, 20 feet minimum. Are you know. Exactly. And and um, what will happen is the guys will use a lot of power to try to help them out. And it's just like being in the bathtub. Once you get that water spinning, you can add more power, but nothing's going to happen. And you can, especially when, when you were moving garbage scows, you probably saw this because scows operate a lot of in shoal water. And you'll see a lot of a lot of the old timers go in there in what we call clutch, which is just minimal power. They'll just bump one in gear and bump it out of gear. Yep. And the reason why is they're using that, the difference between having the water be stagnant or stationary water and then the propellers moving against that. Once they get that water moving, it, it, there's nothing else, it, there's no there's force to do. One of, the, one of the great lines of advice that I ever got in doing any of that came from, a, came from an old timer and he was really old. Um, he said, he said, take the prop out of the equation yeah right 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 and and if you think about that especially for somebody that's doing a sailboat they like to use the power the power is the control which they think is the control but right. as you said you lose that control that's so it. what they have to imagine is you can you could walk the boat by changing the angle of your rudder okay and putting the thrust up against the rudder in a certain way and it's 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 almost you have to do the, the math in your head so to speak as sure. you're backing up you can mitigate the walk one way or you could accentuate it another yeah. way okay yeah. so that you can back it up but the key thing is just to bump it and yeah. let the water start passing over the rudder and then the rudder will steer you like it's supposed to because the more thrust, as you're saying, the more thrust you get involved with that water, the rudder is not doing its job. That's uh, that's exactly right. You know, um, sometimes I think that's going to be very helpful to a lot of good, 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 good. I, I and 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 if people haven't noticed that, if uh, if if for some reason people haven't noticed that as they're planning their approaches to the dock, they might want to think to themselves, hey, you know what? When I go to put this thing in reverse, it's going to start to back a little bit to port. So maybe if if you if you have a choice of landing on the starboard side or on the port side, that if the wind's blowing really hard onto the dock, maybe you want to land on your starboard side so that as you're backing, it's countering the wind to slow you down or vice yeah. versa. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about uh, docking in the wind. I um, I helped uh, uh, build for an owner a, a San Lorenzo powerboat that was 120 feet, okay? And uh, it was a beautiful boat, absolutely gorgeous. And then the owner uh, and his family and myself, uh, we went out for the first time in the boat by ourselves because when they make – when the delivery comes from the yard, the delivery captain drives the boat. Right. The real captain, which was me at the time – we can't touch it until right, right, it's right. officially delivered. But boy, we pay attention to what's going on because we know what's going to happen next. And in this case, the owner was very excited to drive the boat himself. Okay. And we're coming in and the, and he says, okay, Scott, go ahead and dock the boat. 
which owners always do because <laughs> they don't want the responsibility and they don't want to look like a fool coming right. to dock the boat. And we were going into Antibes, which is one of the largest marinas in the Mediterranean. And it's not tight, but every everything's Mediterranean mooring, yeah, right? Sure, sure. So you're, you, you've got your fenders out, you're going in and you have to, you have to pick up uh, a line which is on the bottom, okay? So you have there's a whole process of getting that and then pull it in uh, through the housers and tie it off and that keeps your boat straight. Well, when he said, go ahead and bring it in, I, we were actually at the mouth of, of the marina <laughs> and I hadn't driven the boat at all. Oh, great. And, and, you know, it was like, okay, I had no idea how the bow thrusters, you know, how they reacted. I had no feel for the boat whatsoever. And we have like a 30 knot wind mm. blowing across the boat. And now this is a double decker boat. This is a big, tall baby. Okay. And I pull in and I set the boat up and I'm, I'm using the, I'm going to use the wind to kind of slide me into the back and I can hold the bow with the bow thruster. And we start going in, we start going in and, and I can tell you, Tim, my hands were so wet from <laughs> nervousness because there were two multi-million dollar boats next to me, right? <laughs> and um, I, I eventually got in there. The owner was a little upset with me because he felt like I used a little too much power uh, <laughs> when I got close to the dock. Because, you know, you come up to the dock, you get the lines, and then what happens is you're waiting for the uh, for your mate to get the bow lines secure sure. so you could sit sure. there. And um, I didn't, I didn't have the feel of the throttle, so to speak. Do you know what I'm saying? So I know exactly. Hit it, yeah. You hit it, it's like well, you don't know how long the delay the is and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think that's this is like this is very, very. Um, I think it's good educational stuff that you're doing, and it, I think it's really, really fantastic. And I think your your background is is extraordinary. And um, I'm glad that that you're on the air and I'm glad yeah, that uh, that people can do it because, you know, I think if you're serious about going out and sailing, I think if you're, you know, serious about buying a little small sailboat and you want to go out and want to go to the Caribbean or you want to sail down the coast or you want to do the intercoastal or whatever the case may be, I think getting a professional to um, to talk to you about stuff always is going to stick in your mind and you'll mm -hmm. always do the right thing. But the, just to finish up, let's talk about the last, the last thing um, we were, we, we had briefly talked about the environment mm -hmm. and power things. Sure. Now um, I know that on a boat environment, uh, you have to be really careful on a boat, not to discharge. Correct. Um, there's a lot of rules. Um, and I, I have broken all of them. Uh, I will admit that some, some not by conscious effort, but some by accident. I was in a, a harbor in Turkey. It was pristine, clean, beautiful, clear water. And somebody flushed the toilet and I hadn't switched over to the, <laughs> to the black water tank. And then, you know, next thing you know, I had a fine. But in any case, these are things that happen. What are some of the environmental stuff that you moving fuel for that matter sure. that you guys sort of keep your eyes on well it, it, that's a it's it's a loaded question and the reason why i say it's well, loaded thank is you. That... I, I did load it i did yeah. <laughs> um yeah the, one of the things that concerned me a lot more when i first moved from moving aggregate over to moving what we call red flag or moving hazardous cargo meaning petroleum products was that it's weird um, there are many industries that that professionals are in, like I think like doctors and lawyers and stuff like this, that uh, have a lot of schooling and a lot of training. And, you know, um, I, I beat up doctors on this just because it's a kind of a black and white thing. But, you know, somebody can prescribe the wrong medication. Somebody can make an error and they have insurance for that. And life goes on. They might get a slap on the wrist. Um, if I do my job, and I'm not drunk at the wheel, and but I'm human, and I make a mistake, and oil goes in the water. I will go to jail, and it's 
that's something that separates our industry from a lot of other places. Um, it, it's, 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 I think that moving hazardous cargo like oil is something that we're all addicted to, but we all understand that we really need to be careful about it. So when something bad happens, which is quite frankly, what humans do, humans, humans mess up. That's uh, I mean, we're, they, that's why they say it's only human. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, accidents happen. We can have a, a thousand things to mitigate problems, but something's going to go wrong. And when it does, heads roll and they roll really hard and politicians feel like they do their jobs when they make examples out of people. Mm-hmm. Having, having said that, so, so that's why I say it's a loaded question. Um, all, of, all of the barges that we move have to be what we call double skin barges. Uh, when I first started moving oil, we still had a couple sing, skin, single skin barges that were uh, left I, over. I and, dare you to say that 10 times fast. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been drinking yet. <laughs> I will be later, but I haven't yet. At, 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 at any rate, um, all the single skin barges in America have been, I think they're all timed out now. And right. what's, what's kind of sad, but it's just the way things are. I say it's sad just because how I feel about things in a geopolitical way, but all, most of the single skin barges in America went to other countries. Right. And it just, it just seems kind of sad to me that, look, it's not good enough for us, but it's good enough for you. But anyway, that's a, so, so at any rate, when you see, when you see a big barge and that, that's another thing too, that a lot of uh, laymen will look at a barge and they'll say, Oh, look at that small barge. A small barge is usually a loaded barge because 20 feet of the barge is underwater. underwater. Exactly. <laughs> Then they'll say, oh, look at that big barge. They don't realize, well, it's empty. And that's why it's big. But at any rate, there, there's there's a good, the void spaces that are around there. And there's some formula, and I'm not the guy to tell you. I, I don't know all the formula. But they can't just put two skins, you know, they can't put two hulls together. There's a formula right. that they have to right. be of so, such a, but in our barges, I want to say it's four to six, maybe eight feet of space in between there. So right. in the event that, that they did have an elision or a collision, you had a grounding, something happened and it tore something open, you would have water go into the void space, but you wouldn't have product go out. Um, right. where, where we do see a lot of um, potential for problems in our industry, I have to be very careful how I word this because I am still working for these sure. <laughs> in this industry. Yeah. But, uh, uh, is usually the connection between the barge and the and the refinery or the the, the fuel dock. Right. Um, that's and and so, so some places and it really depends on the captain of the port and that usually goes by state. So in other words, New Jersey will have us uh, boom in, and when we say boom right. in, we're not talking like a sailing boom, but it's a containment boom. Containment where, boom. Yep, they'll have us boom in barges where a lot of places in New York don't have us, and they're right across the river. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. I used, I, I used to sit on a. I used to take the booms out, um, out to the anchorage, out to the outer anchorage where the uh, uh, oil, the oil sure, tankers would come in. Right? Yeah, and we did lightering off of those, and and we'd have to sit while it was being lightered. We'd have to sit out there with the booms, sure, and sure. you know, just that's a very boring job. But uh, and I mean, even off the coast of, of California here, we have the Chevron plant right. and they have a few anchorages out there. And uh, I've had a couple of friends who run who run the service boats out there and the crew boats. And uh, yeah, when they go, when they go, they, they you know, they actually literally bring the hose up from the bottom. It lays right. on the bottom yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and then they hook it into the ship and, and off sure. it goes. But they actually sit out there, you know, in case there's a, a spill. Um, and I think the I think the one thing that's important I want my audience to know is that uh, there is a level of consciousness about doing the right thing in the maritime industry. Uh, some of the people, some of the captains, the gruffer guys are what they are. There's a level of consciousness getting a drop of water or getting a drop of uh, uh, fuel oil in 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 water is 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 not something everybody wants to deal with. So they're very conscious about that. Without a doubt. And like in in New York Harbor, when there's a sheen on the water, um, apparently there's a whole like NCIS or something. They they, they scoop it up and we've actually had 
Coast Guard come and want to sample the oil in our engines or in our bilge. And, you know, to, to, cause they can, I guess every, every engine burns oil differently and mm-hmm. how the, how things happen. So they can actually track down which boat in the Harbor put what oil overboard if it happened. So right. it's, but, but to get back to what you were saying, yeah, you know, um, I like to think of myself as somewhat of an environmentalist and people say, Tim, you push 2.4 million gallons of petroleum around. How are you an environmentalist? And my response to that is that, look, we are a society that whether we like it or not, and regardless of what we might do in the future, today we are completely reliant on fossil fuels. So wouldn't you rather have me, who is concerned about the environment, move it than somebody who really just uh, who doesn't believe in in global war, you know, climate change, or even that the world is round <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly these people we don't know so um the oh, kind oh, of one, one last thing i, I yeah I, sure I, I didn't answer your question very well i was thinking of this while you were talking before and that's that when we take on fuel for the boat our our the boat that i'm on now is it's, it's not a very big one but we hold sixty thousand gallons of fuel right. um there are other tugboats i've worked on that have held well over a hundred thousand right when we take on fuel there's a whole procedure that has to happen. And um, it, there's there are bags that, that they put there that they can hold, I don't know, probably 50 gallons. But they're these great big heavy-duty bags they put over the vents. So yep. if, a, if, a, if a tank burps, they call it burping. But right. you, uh, uh, people have been on, uh, in the water where, the, you, know, where, where they, you fill up your deck thing and all of a sudden the, it bubbles up on you. That, that's a right. burp. Well, well. We if that if it burps in one of our tanks, it goes into a bag, so we contain it that way. We actually surround our deck with what we call soft booms. They're great big sausages that are of the oil absorbent type to right. to keep everything up like that. And uh, we we have to have two men on our boat and uh, you know uh, out on deck regardless of what the weather is. One guy, the engineer that's gauging the tanks, and the other, the, the it's usually the AB or the deckhand that's holding an electron, uh, a button that he can. He, he, some places will have it where they, they hold a string and they pull it, and it pops a, it right. pulls an electric button on the thing, but that'll instantly shut down the situation if if the hose were to start to spring a leak, if something happened, and we and then because where I say things happen, we can do everything right, and we're all set up fine. And then somebody will go by throwing a four or five foot wake and suddenly yeah. our lines start to break. And when your lines break, then the, the boat doesn't stay where it's supposed to be and your fuel hose might get stretched. So these are all things that we do to uh, try to mitigate um, yeah. any spill. Bot- that we bottom have. line is be courteous when you're going past a fuel dock. Yeah, absolutely. Not, please <laughs> don't. don't the, I've seen more people get hurt. Um, you know, at fuel docks than probably any place in the world. You know, a, a big wake goes by and some unstable young person or older person's in between, you know, getting off the boat or getting on the boat in the dock and there's a wave and then suddenly they're between the dock and the boat. Oh, yeah. And, and it's I've seen it happen so many times. It's it's like. So everybody out there, just be careful. Watch your wake and 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 keep moving forward. Well, look and, and, I, and, and I, watch Tim be at sea at YouTube. Well, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. I was going to say, Tim, plug the show. It is a fantastic show. I love oh, watching so it. Um, and I would. I, I we only have we're up to just doing an hour. So uh, this has been very informative, very interesting. I hope that uh, your guys, uh, your viewers, will uh, come and join me on the podcast. Absolutely, and and they'll get a different insight from Tim over here on uh, Offshore Explorer. And so it's uh, YouTube, and it's Tim B at C. So T I M B A T S E A. And mm-hmm. and what I would like to say is that I've enjoyed this time. I I am. Uh, a kindred spirit. Uh, I especially love the the slow TV on the way up the Hudson. I have done that um, uh, pushing um, eight coal barges up that <laughs> river and and at at at, at negligible speed. Um, 
<laughs> but coming down the river like a bat out of hell. <laughs> and well, and that was been... always the most beautiful thing to do. So thank you very much for and, the production you do. And and I really want to have you come back in in the near future. Absolutely. Stay in touch and I'll see you on the one whistle. All right. Thank you very much, Tim. Ciao. Thank you. That was very insightful, Scott. I enjoyed listening to what Tim had to say. I can't wait to check out his YouTube channel. And so what do we have planned for next week? Well, for next week, we go to the third leg of our stool offshore explorer with Scott Dodgson, which is about place. And one of my favorite places in the Mediterranean is Antibes, France. It is sort of... My second home, as you might might think about it, it is a, uh, a very unique town. It's the center for most of the yachting and charter business in the Mediterranean. Uh, it is a very special place for me. It has an unbelievable history that crosses both cultures and wars and celebrities and big ass yachts and there's a lot of stories that are in there and I think it'll be uh, it'll be exciting the uh, episode is going to be called uh, the whiff of success thank you for tuning in if you like this episode be sure to subscribe on apple podcast spotify or wherever you get your podcasts also be sure to rate and review you can find us on facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org you can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Kavisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.